0: chapter 11 today, uh, starting in verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Uh, We are going to go 8 through 22 today. You know, C.S. Lewis is a guy that I talk about pretty frequently up here. Uh, He's a ferocious writer. Not only does he write books and essays, but he, he wrote whole radio programs that the entire country of Great Britain listened to during the Great Second World War. But one of the more outstanding and unbelievable things that Lewis did is that he personally wrote back to everybody who ever wrote him a letter. And that seems to be a very daunting task when you understand the popularity of C.S. Lewis in the 1940s and the 1950s. And there was one person that Lewis particularly wrote to with great quantity. He wrote over 100 letters to a woman named Mary Willis Shilborn. She was an American woman who wrote to Lewis about her great financial struggles, um, the, the grief in her husband's passing, and even the pain in her body from her impending death. And so those letters were actually compiled in a book called Letters to an American Lady that was published in 1966, three years after the death of Lewis. And I want to read a letter that Lewis wrote on June 17th, 1963. And the subject matter seems to be the impending death of Mary Willis. And so I'll just read this. This is Lewis responding to her letter. He says, Pain is terrible, but surely you do not have fear as well. Can you not see death as the friend and deliverer? It means stripping off that body which is tormenting you, like taking off a hair shirt or getting out of a dungeon. What is there to be afraid of? You have long attempted, and none of us do more, a Christian life. Your sins are confessed and absolved. Has this world been so kind to you that you should have regret in leaving it? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Remember, though, we struggle against things because we are afraid of them. It is often the other way around. We get afraid because we struggle. Are you struggling, resisting? Don't you think our Lord says to you, peace, child, peace, Let go, relax. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Let go, I will catch you. Do you trust me so little? Of course, now, this may not be the end. Then make it a good rehearsal. Yours, and like you, a tired traveler near the journey's end, Jack. Jax was the preferred nickname of C.S. Lewis, and he died just five months after he wrote this letter. And Mary Willis, despite the struggles and pain in her life, lived for another 12 years. She died in 1975. Lewis's letter is full of supreme hope in the midst of struggle and pain, and hope as he sees it as better things. Not hope in better things that are to come in this world, but hope of things eternal things that are so glorious and wonderful that Lewis questions one's desire to even remain attached to this finite world. He says, has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? So much better of a hope and reality do we have in a better place with a better king in eternity that we should not regret leaving the old. And what does Lewis see as the instrument that propels us to this better hope in a better place with a better king? It's trust. He, he wrote, do you trust me so little? And he penned it as words from the Lord. And what is trusting in a better place with better promises when we cannot see it? Is it not faith? Faith. A reasonable and wise decision to trust in the unseen wonders and love and character of God? And what becomes the product or the fruit of that faith? Is it not love and joy and peace? And where does that love and joy and peace come to us by faith? From a better place with better promises. Where does it meet us? Inside the life's pains and struggles where it secures us and assures us that we don't have to be afraid. And so with great diligence, the author of Hebrews has has laid out for us the surpassing greatness of the new covenant, that in the new covenant, through Jesus, we have a better prophet, that we have a better priest, that we have a better meeting place with God, that we have a better sacrifice, and that our lives, through Jesus, we have better hope and better promises that come from a better place, a better kingdom with a better king. Yet the instrument that propels us into those better realities isn't based upon our performances or our offerings or our status or our wealth, only through faith, trusting in the often thought of but unnoticed promises and character of God in his better kingdom. And like Lewis, the writer of Hebrews seems to want to ground his people in the product or the fruit of that faith, that it would be elevated in the lives of their readers so that they would have a tangible love and joy and peace in this moment that he writes to them, in all the moments of their lives. And if you could surmise all of what Lewis, or, or the writer of Hebrews, says here in chapter 11, verses 8 through 22, it might be the line that Lewis wrote, that there are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Hebrew 11 this morning puts us face-to-face with several Old Testament faith, or, uh, saints in their journey, but it actually makes us look past them, through them, to where they tie their anchor and why they live with such great hope. And so let's pray and jump into our text today. Father, we come before you today um, believing by faith, that we are saved, believing by faith that all the promises that we know of in Christ Jesus are yes and amen, knowing by faith that you have called us to be in a room like this today, to gather as the saints, to worship you in corporate worship, to hear your word. By faith, we trust, Lord, that this word is your word. By faith, we trust that the Spirit will make these words come alive in our hearts that brings conviction and joy and gladness to where it needs, it's needed most. And so, Lord, today we claim you to be, by faith, sufficient for all our needs and all of our struggles. And we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's start in verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even though she was past the age, since she, was considered, she considered him faithful, who promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who seek thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had been gone out, they would have an had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he went on, and he who received the promises was the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Made mention of the Exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And so, what does this say? What does this say? Well, of course, we know that Abraham is the great patriarch. He's the great father of the Hebrew nation. He was the beginning of what we know to be the redemptive line that God made that accumulated or culminated with the person in the works of Jesus Christ. And so the events that our author is referencing here in Hebrews 11 actually comes from the very first book of our Bible, in the, in the book of Genesis. And in, in chapter 12, in verse 1, we see God coming to Abraham. And this is what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing." So eventually, Abraham has his name changed to Abraham by God. Abraham meaning father of many. Now, I want you to note here that Abraham is 75 years old when God comes to him in this event. He has well enjoyed the discounted coffee at McDonald's for some years before God comes to him. And what does God say? He says, follow me. Leave behind the only country that you've ever known for 75 years. And all of the relatives and all of the connections that you've made in those years, leave those behind. Leave behind the culture and the community that you've only been used to for what? For a promise. A promise of a better country, a better place with a better inheritance. He didn't get a down payment, he was called out by faith. And in this, he, he almost in some ways uh, acts like uh, the, the command of the New Testament marriage, that, that we are to leave our mother and father and cleave to one another, that Abraham leaves and cleaves to God alone. And it says, by faith, Abraham went. And did you notice that it said that he didn't know where he was going? Like he didn't know where he was going. He just follows. And as the, the word records, he eventually ends up in the land of promise, only to never inherit it at all. He lives as a foreigner. In fact, he lives in tents with his family as if they were nomads. He never possessed it. The only property that Abraham ever owned was his own burial plot. Now, I don't want you to make a mistake in thinking that Abraham was poor. Abraham was very wealthy according to the standards of that day, but he never received the land inheritance that God promised to him in his lifetime. And why was that? Because Abraham waited on God. He didn't want any city. He didn't want any land. He wanted a city with foundations that was built and designed by God himself. And so there is a sense in which Abraham trusted in by faith. What he trusted in wasn't an earthly domain, but it was a heavenly city where God reigned with his people. Some believe that Abraham knew that his inheritance wouldn't be for himself, it would be for his offspring. But our author contends here that it wasn't the land of Canaan that Abraham was actually after. It was the home in the presence of God that he wanted one that will occur when Christ returns and God restores and renews the earth in his everlasting kingdom of peace. And in the same way, that is what we trust and hope in today. Abraham trusts and hopes in the same better country that we do today. To he and his wife Sarah, Abraham is promised innumerable offspring by God, yet Sarah was barren, she was unable to have children. In Genesis 12, at this promise, Sarah is 65 years old. Now, I have a one-year-old. I'm 41. That seems to be late in life to have kids. My, our last two pregnancies have been considered geriatric pregnancies because Nikki's been over the age of 35, but here's a woman who's promised a son at 65, yet she waited another 25 years wondering how God was going to do this miraculous thing and ends up giving birth to Isaac at the age of 90. And so from these faithful two people come the whole nation of Israel, not because they are spectacular, not because they have some special skill set or because they're driven, but simply because they trusted in God by faith. They were faithful to him as he was to them. Yet none of them received the truest measure of their promise that God had made to them why they were alive. They all died. They didn't inherit the land. They didn't exist in the land with innumerable offsprings as it was promised. They died long before any of that happened. They lived as foreigners in their own land, resident aliens. They lived with a better country in mind, a a hope in a better country, and it shaped how they lived and what they trusted. And that homesickness, that is talked about here, is the hallmark of all of God's faithful. It is the pleasing aroma that God delights in. It's what he draws near to us through. It is when we regard heaven and eternity as unreal and distant places that God is ashamed of us. But never is he ashamed of the homesick. And so after his birth to his son Isaac, God makes Abraham do what seems to be the most cruel of all events, After promising him this son Isaac, after spending years with this son Isaac, in whom Sarah and and Abraham delighted in, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. And if you read the story in Genesis, there is no debate with God on the wise. God, why are you doing this? Abraham just set out. And it says, by faith, Abraham considered. That means he calculated in his mind. He made a math equation in his mind. He calculated God's work. He calculated God's presence. He calculated God's faithfulness and what he had done for them. And at the end of that, the math came up with this, that God is worthy of my trust even in this, that he is the God of immense power and he is, can raise Isaac from the grave in this life or even the next. But of course, we know that Abraham was stopped from making that sacrifice. But it's interesting to note that in these calculations, where Abraham trusted in God by faith, it essentially means that Isaac was as good as dead in his own mind. He was already dead in the eyes of Abraham. And so for three days, they journey to Mount Moria, and on that third day, there was a resurrection of some sorts, as God, in noticing his faith, stopped him and blessed him profusely. And after three days of being as good as dead, Isaac was alive. And there is a bit of glorious foreshadowing here, isn't there? To the Son of God, the only Son of God, who would die on that same mountain, Mount Moria and be resurrected, not in an abstract sense, but in a very physical sense on the third day. There is no shortage of ways that God is good to us in his word and his foreshadowing of helping us know who he is and what he intends to do. And that same son Isaac on his deathbed who fought the will of God time and time in his life, who, who had known that God had called him to give the blessing, the inheritance to Jacob and not Esau... Yet Isaac, always the struggler to do the will of God, was bent to give it to Esau. Yet on this dying man's deathbed, he was tricked by his wife, Rebekah, and Isaac to actually give Isaac the blessing and the inheritance, because Isaac pretended to be Esau. It is faith here for Isaac, because when he realized that it happened... He came to this battle again against doing the will of God. And in that battle, he remembered what was true in all of his life, that God prevailed again. Despite his willful disobedience, Isaac's faith was known through his acceptance of God's will. God, you win, was the cry of his faith. And in verse 21, Jacob, in leaning over his staff, is, is considered to be an act of worship. He said he leaned over the head of his staff, And why is this an act of of worship? Well, we need to understand that that, that Jacob needed to lean on that staff because he was injured. There is a story that we read that Abraham wrestled with a man for all night, later to learn that that man was God himself. And during that struggle, and during that wrestling, God touched his hip, and Isaac's hip popped out of socket. That Cain was necessary because of that injury. And here, late in his life, he's leaning over it as an act of worship as he remembers that fight. And he remembers again that God will prevail. And from this learning and leaning posture, Jacob blesses the future generations with the same truth that God will prevail. He doesn't know when. He just knows it's true. And here Joseph, at the end of his life, makes instructions for his bones to be taken into the promised land. His bones laid in a coffin for almost 400 years above ground, quietly testifying to the people of God that they would indeed return to the promised land. They didn't know when that would happen, but the bones of Joseph reminded them of that promise that there are better things ahead than any we leave behind. And so what would this mean, this text mean to this first century church? Why why is it important? Well, I think it's important to understand that when we grow up in very works-based environments, meaning that, that you earn things through effort, and I think that we live in a very earning things through effort kind of culture, sometimes the ideas of faith and rest can can be completely lost. And so certainly this little first century congregation would have seen people perform their religion all of their lives. The old covenant was full of ritual and tangible acts that you must do. And so the examples of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph would have been known in all of that day. Their stories would have been heralded and esteemed They would have been heroes to these people. They would have been known for their successes and their conquest and their victories and their leaderships. Certainly, they would have been reminded of God's faithfulness to his people, but what would have stuck out most to them were their actions, the actions of these Old Testament saints, the the mighty works of their life. Look at what these heroes did, they was at esteem. These are the works that we must exemplify in our own life. Rarely, if ever, was faith explored. The faith that these people had in God was never the main idea. And today, I think, if we think about it in this way, when we look at people who are successful... We often look at their life and we think, well, what did they do to become successful? And then we look at their lives and we look at what they did and we think, well, if I could build the strategy and if I did what they did, then I could get the same things that they got. But rarely do we ever ask the question, like, what did they have faith in? What did they believe And as believers today, we do the same thing, that we look at these stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we look at their lives, and we say, what did these people do that God loved them so much? And we say, I need to do what they did so that God can bless me and love me the way that he did them. But rarely, if ever, do we talk about what they had faith in. Yet that is the only thing that matters. And so when our author connects his readers to these mighty saints in the Old Testament, he does through the eyes of faith for them to see the faith that was required by these men and women, the trust that they had in God's promises, the calculated belief that they had that God would be God and to rest in him by faith. You see, it was never about Abraham. Abraham. It was never about Sarah. It was never about Isaac. It was never about Jacob or Joseph. The story of God's people has always been about our God. It is always about God. It is always about his promises, his commitment to those promises, and his character. And what a wonderful encouragement this would have been to those people in that day. This first century church who is struggling deeply in persecution from both sides, from the Romans and from their Jewish peers of past. What a, a wonderful word of encouragement to strengthen them, for them to look at their, their, the heroes of their faith and, and to be told that it had nothing to do with what they did or their abilities or their work, that in fact their strength actually came to them only through faith. Abraham didn't know where he was going, did he? But yet he trusted in God by faith. Abraham and Sarah didn't know how God was going to conceive this child, yet they trusted him by faith. Abraham didn't know why God would call him to do such a cruel act to sacrifice his son, but he considered him worthy to be trusted. Jacob and Joseph didn't know when they would receive their inheritance, but they trusted God by faith that it would come. What great truth and reminder for them and for us today. These words in Hebrew 11 aren't just for them, they're for us, to know that God is worthy, that he's proven to be faithful, that his character is perfect and his word is true, which means that we can have faith in the midst of not knowing where or how or why, or when, that all of those concerns can be mitigated when we set our eyes on a better promise, in a better place, with a better king, and through the eyes of faith that we can know and experience a tangible love and joy and peace in these present moments and beyond. That despite our circumstances and struggles in our life and in this world, we trust God as homesick sojourners, resident aliens, that he is able and mighty. And as we long for a better home, as we long for a better country, the world around us sees a people of God, a body of believers with a different tone, a different perspective, a different pace, different instincts, different desires, a different heart, that we actually come across to this world as foreigners, someone living away from home, that we have calculated God to be so worthy of our trust that we've wrested from ourselves, that we've wrested from ourselves to live in that future coming better country like it was already here. It is to be a practical atheist to live with a theoretical belief in God, but that belief have no discernible effect on our day-to-day life. We always must remember that there is a spiritual reality to life, that we have a heavenly home that is our real home, that we have a citizenship, as Paul says, in heaven. And living in light of that makes faith considerably easier. And as we live by faith in another country, in another place, the world around us gets to see that kingdom breaking through in our lives, Now, I want you to notice here what the author is not saying, because I think it's important to know what he's not saying. He speaks glowingly about the example of the lives of these Old Testament saints, but he leaves out some pretty critical details. He doesn't tell us about Abraham's Disobedience. He doesn't tell us about the delayed obedience that he has in ret- going to the land. He doesn't tell us about how Abraham and Sarah took the promise of God for a child into their own hands, first with one of Abraham's attendants, and then conceive a child through one of Sarah's house slaves named Hagar. He doesn't tell us about the many willful acts of disobedience of Isaac. He doesn't tell us necessarily about that deception, the lie that Jacob played. On Isaac to get the blessing, nor does he mention any of the successes in the wisdom of Joseph, only his death. The people mentioned in here in Hebrews 11 are, in fact, a very flawed people. And the author excludes that entirely. And why is that? Well, of course, I can't pinpoint exactly, but I, I, I think it would have to be for this reason, because the journey of faith is about perseverance and not failure. It's about God's righteousness and not our own righteousness. It's about his faithfulness. It is faith that is pleasing to God. Our faith isn't divided or defined by our valleys, our miscues, our hiccups, or mistakes in life. Faith, in some ways, is a 30,000-foot view of our lives that says it's not about what you've done, but it's about whom you've pursued and I think that we often read the examples of people like Abraham and men and women the old, and we get encouragement to think, but we need to be just like them. But Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Jessica and Joseph are actually irrelevant in this text. They only serve as analogies that prove God's goodness and love and faithfulness. And what do those analogies edify to us? That faith isn't a feeling. That faith isn't a genie that gets things from God that we want. That faith isn't just a willful and wishful hope. Faith is being anchored in what is true, even when we can't see it. And Martin Luther said it this way. The great reformer said, Faith is permitting our lives to be seized by the things we do not see. I'll say it again. Faith is permitting ourselves to be seized by the things that we do not see. Faith is about being seized by the truth and the realities of God that anchor us into another world to rest from ourselves and in the presence of God. And what do we rest in faith from? Well, we rest in faith even when we don't know where. Where our next paycheck, our next meal or our next job is going to come from. We rest in faith even when we don't know how God is going to make this work out. Even though we don't know how things are going to get better. We rest in faith even when we don't know why something like this could ever happen to us. We rest in faith even when we don't know when our hope will be fulfilled or when that deliverance will come. And why do we rest in faith? Because as the people of God, we know this. That there are far better things ahead than we will ever leave behind. There are far better things than any that we will leave behind. And that anchors us into another world. And we are tethered by that anchor to live in his kingdom, by his kingship, as our Lord and not for ourselves.